hear the word of God from Judges chapter 2. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors. I said, I'll never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land. But you shall break down their altars, yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bochim, where they offered sacrifices to the Lord. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things that the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnah, here in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. After that, whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the balls. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors, who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies. As long as the judge lived, for the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, because this nation has violated the covenant that I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord 
and walk in it as their ancestors did. The Lord had allowed these nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. So good to see your beautiful, beautiful eyes. Hope you're doing well this morning, and it's so good to be able to worship with all of you guys this day. I love it. Love being together to worship with you guys. Heard me say it last week, and you heard me say it every week, and I'll probably say it every week from here on out. I love worshiping with the body. I love worshiping with you guys together. Today, as you guys can tell, we're in a brand new series. We just finished up the book of Joshua last week. And we're in a brand new series now, we're in the book of Judges. Some fun books, uh, challenging books, interesting books, but books that are, exist in the canon, books that exist in our literature for us to, to learn from and to grow from, intentional books that God's put in there. I don't know about you, but for me, uh, growing up, I didn't know much about the book of Judges. Uh, it was just for like a long time of my life, the book of Judges was just a bunch of cool characters that I heard about when I was a kid in Sunday school. You know, like the story of Samson and the story of Gideon were just like fairy tales. I remember mom telling me or hearing that through like Flanagraph in Sunday school class. They were just characters for kids, like kind of like Greek mythology. It was like Samson was like our Hercules is the way I looked at it, you know, like this is what this was. And his name was, he's a really cool dude with long hair that was really, really strong. So I was like, that's Hercules, that's perfect. That's all he wants to be. But I can tell you something. If you actually study and we get to this series together in this book of Judges, there's so much to glean. And it's so incredible. It's, 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 it's a little crazy, to be honest with you. The book of Judges is a little crazy. It's one of those books that's tough to read because the content sometimes doesn't make sense to you. I mean, it's not tough like Leviticus is tough. Leviticus is tough because it's arduous. It's one of those books where you read, you're like, you're saying this again, and why are we describing this, and why are we going so much detail about this? It's one of those difficult books to read. Josh, Judges is not like that. Judges is actually full of action and adventure and intrigue and scandal, and you're like, what's happening? This is the book where you're like, hey, read the Bible. It's exciting. It's like, it's like all these other books you read. You know, it's, this is the book that you kind of lean them towards. Guerrilla warfare, intrigue, so much more. So it's not tough to read and preach through because some of the content, uh, because it's not exciting. It's tough to preach and to teach and for us to read because sometimes it just doesn't make sense, right? It's a hard book to make sense of. It's a hard book to get. And it's a really hard book if you just take little bits and pieces out of it. If you don't read it in its context and as a whole. It's a difficult difficulty, but we're going to attempt to go through it together. The next six weeks, we're going to be in the book of Judges, and our prayer is the Holy Spirit will illuminate this book, show us how it fits into the whole meta-narrative of God's redemptive work in our lives. We believe here at Waypoint Church in the whole council of Scripture. We believe in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we want to hear from God who wrote both, and who's given us both to know him and to love him by. So that's our prayer for our people, is that we're going to, God's going to use this time in this book to grow us, to fall deeper in love with him, and to learn more about who God is. Does that sound good? That's the journey we're going on. So the book of Judges is full of incredible characters. You have some awesome names. Like if you're ever looking for baby name, this is a good book to go to. <laughs> Othniel, Ehud, good names. You have a female judge, the only female judge, Deborah, which I think that's a normal sounding name. That's a good name, right? I prefer Ehud, or Ehud but that's just me. Then you have the two famous judges. You have Gideon and Samson. 
They did not judge. They, these were numerous judges. There's other judges. There's some minor judges, major judges. It's defined by scholars. There's some judges that have longer stories and shorter stories. So how do we get to this period in history called the judges? I'm going to give you a quick little history lesson here. Judges is a period of time that occurred for the Israelite people following the death of Joshua until they have their first king. Now, it's easy to read this book and think that this was a very short period of time, but in fact, it was close to 400 years. It's important to know that because for me, I'm like, dude, what's, what's wrong with these people? How do you forget so fast? But actually, it was a course of 400 years. It wasn't one generation. It wasn't two generations. The book of Judges was actually 400 years. So most of what happens here happens over a span of 400 years. Now, if you look at the beginning of the book of Judges, we see that it resembles the beginning of the book before. It resembles the beginning of the book of Joshua. Where in the book of Joshua, we read after the death of Moses. and the book of Judges, we read after the death of Joshua. So it's purposely framed in this way to show a connection to the past book. And also show that this is a boundary event in the Bible. This is a key event in the Bible. Something transitioning is happening here. Something big. With the death of Joshua and the reclamation of the promised land, something big was happening. In Judges chapter 2, verse 1, we read, The Lord said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give to your ancestors. So we saw from our last sermon series that Joshua, in Joshua, Moses hands off the reins to Joshua. He's the new leader. He brings God's people into the land of Canaan, wages battle after battle, fight after fight, and they take back the promised land. And after winning battle after battle, fight after fight, there's this measure of peace that occurred for all the people. And during this measure of peace, the land was divided back up to the tribes, and they hold a covenant renewal ceremony. It's over this beautiful kind of marriage ceremony type situation where we celebrate the land God's given us, and now they're divided up the land again amongst the people. So Joshua's work is done. In chapter 1, verse 1, after the death of Joshua, the question that arises now is, who's going to lead the people? We've had Moses take us through the wilderness. Now we've had 110 years of Joshua leading us and bringing us into the promised land and conquering the battles. Who now is going to lead? And instead of going from a one leader for this whole nation of Israel, they split up. They went to the individual tribes into individual ways. So instead of having one nation together, they split up into tribes. And they took possession of their own land, and they were to finish the work started under Joshua. They were to continue taking over the land and then cultivate the land for the glory of God. So the land that each tribe was given by God, they were supposed to take, continue to conquer, and to cultivate. This is a new world. In this moment, this is where we're at in the book of Judges. So the next question, who are judges? What's a judge? And the best way to answer that question is by telling you the circumstances that led to having a judge. What we'll see in the book of Judges again and again is this cycle where God's people reject God. They turn away from him. They rebel against him. They go to Canaanite religion. They mix in practices of the Canaanites with their own worship. And in so doing, the enemy is conquering them. That drives them to their knees and they cry out to God for help. And again and again, when they cry out to God, God gives them a deliverer. He gives them a rescuer. He gives them a sort of savior. And that rescuer or deliverer is called a judge. And the judge is often the tribal leader of a community. So we actually have the definition found in chapter 2, verse 16, where it says, The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. That's a definition. The judges are the ones who saved them out of the hands of the oppressors, of the raiders, of the ones who were fighting against them. So you see, the judges were the ones who rose up and rescued or led the people to rescue from the Canaanite raiders. Now here's the thing. The people shouldn't have needed these judges. 
They were first supposed to finish the job and take full possession of the land. And then two, they were supposed to follow and honor God, which would have led them to not have to be raided and be beaten. But because they didn't do both of those things, they needed judges to come and rescue them. So really quickly on on the screen, I'm going to show you guys the pattern in the book of Judges. So this diagram will help you see this pattern that's going to be, that happens all throughout the book of Judges. And so it'll be up on the screen in one second, hopefully. There it is. So this is a pattern that's happening in the book of Judges. It's first off, it starts off with spiritual failure amongst the people. They start worshiping idols, mixing God with their Canaanite practices, forsaking their living hope. We spoke last week what the Canaanite religion practiced and why that was tempting for the Israelite people. So they intermingle, become one with the Canaanites, and they start going away. They lead to spiritual failure. This will lead to divine judgment by means of oppressors. God will allow the, the rival armies, the other tribes, to come in and conquer them because no longer were they trusting God to fight the battles. So they trusted in their own might, and in their own might, they would lose. So they would lose these battles that normally they would win under God's protection, but now they were losing these battles. So they'd cry out. The Israelite people would cry out for deliverance. The people would see they couldn't win without God, so they'd cry out, and then a divine provision of deliverer would come. A judge would come and fight somebody like a Samson with a jawbone of a donkey. One of my favorite stories, right? Jawbone of a donkey, why? Only God. But either way, would fight and conquer and deliver the people. And they'd go to the provision of deliverance. But then they go right back into this incredibly harsh cycle of spiritual um, failure. And this pattern happens over and over again in the book of Judges. And one thing about these judges I want to make sure you see, and the author wants you to get also, is that at best, these judges that we get, even though they're rescuers, even though they're saviors of the people, at best, they're flawed heroes. At their very best, they're flawed heroes. It doesn't lead to lasting breaking of this cycle. It leads to a constant cycle. And if you see, even in the book of Judges, you'll see how most of these judges fail. The judges are flawed people. Some of them start out well and good, but have this cycle of bombing. Every one of them. And you see, this is also a kind of theme in the Bible. I mean, the best example of this is King David. And I love King David. King David's like my favorite dude of all time. He's that guy as a kid who, who, who defeated a giant. He's the guy who fought against wolves and bears and lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. He's that guy who conquered all that stuff. He's a warrior poet who wrote the book of Psalms. He's the guy who is so worthy of honor and respect that the mighty men, grace warriors at the time, all wanted to serve under this guy. I love the story of King David. I love the fact that he was also called a man after God's own heart. Yet at the same time, David, who is so awesome when you look at him, look at his resume in ways, but he also is so flawed. He was an adulterer. And not only is he an adulterer, he ordered the death of one of his most loyal men. I mean, how terrible is that? He says, I want your wife, and because I want your wife, I'm going to order you to go die for me. He, he was flawed, and the best king that Israel has ever had in the history of Israel was flawed. And that's one of the messages of judges, is it doesn't matter who you look up to, they are flawed because they're human. Please hear me well on this. There's not a human being on this earth that you can look to, not any human being in all of history, whether it's Martin Luther or John Calvin or whether it's Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr., they're all flawed. Every one of them. That's what the book of Judges teaches. Yes, we should admire people's traits. We can admire actions, but we don't have to, and we don't have to cancel anybody else because they're flawed, but we are to know that human beings are flawed, even the best of us. 
It's a huge deal for me and you to understand this right now that not only are they, flaw, they flawed, not everyone, only are all heroes flawed, but so are we. That we're all flawed, we're human, we're sinful, and because we're flawed, we need the righteous one. Do you guys get it? I mean, do you guys ever feel that in your own heart? I mean, can you just often tell that there's this thing inside you that makes you do what you don't want to do, and sometimes you don't do what you want to do? Is that ever real for anybody else but me? I mean, so often in my own heart, I'm like, man, I know what I need to do. I know what I want to be like. I want to be like this kind of man. I want to be like this kind of person. And I struggle with that. Why? Why do I do the things I don't want to do? Why do I hurt the people that I love? Why do I not do the things I do want to do? And I feel there's something wrong and we see it. And you wish you could do better. You wish you could do more. And guys, I want you to hear this. That desire to do what is right and beautiful and just, that's the taste of the divine. That's the image of God that God created you to have. God has given every one of you, he made every human being in his own image. So there's something inside of you that knows, man, this is right, this is beautiful, this is good, this is just. But in our fallen nature, in our sinful state, we give in to what is wrong around us. It's like we've been given a taste of the divine, but also there's something flawed in us. Something flawed that happened with the fall, that yearns for, that, that keeps on pulling us back to things that we know aren't right, know aren't just, that know aren't good and beautiful. So we give in and we succumb. So we have this state that we're in and we know that not only are our heroes flawed, we're flawed. So what do we do with our flaws? Who can we turn to? And just like the Israelites who are in this cycle, we've, we're like, we're in a cycle. I try to do good, and I try to do well, but I, I fail, so I know this is not right. Something's missing in my life. We need a rescuer. We need a judge. We need a deliverer. We need a savior. One who's done it perfectly. Not a flawed judge like the Israelites had, but we need one who can do it perfectly. Someone we can turn to our weakness and say, we can't do this. We aren't able to fulfill this. We need a true example of righteousness and humility and justice and grace and mercy. And so we were given one. We cried out for a judge, and the Israelites cried out for judges, and God in his mercy and his grace, even those flawed people, even the ones who forgot about him, he heard their cries, and he gave them a deliverer. He gave them, and even us in our state, we, in our crying out, he, he gives us a deliverer, and his name is Jesus. And if you're here today and you're, just, you're sitting here and you understand, maybe it's hitting you, maybe it's, you're feeling like for the first time that you understand that there is something wrong, there's something flawed in me, the way I'm, I'm built up. I know I'm made for something greater. I know I can taste the righteousness that this world is pulling me away from. And you're carrying guilt and shame from the things that you've done or things you didn't do and you wish you did. Or maybe things that were done to you. My people, I want you to hear this, that there is a deliverer and a judge who's been given to you, who's lived a life perfectly, who's a righteous deliverer and our king, who's willing to take your place of condemnation and guilt, and his name is Jesus, and he's here for you today to be your judge. Not the way you think of that word, not the way the word first comes out of judge as if to judge over us, but instead to deliver us and receive the judgment in our place. And you can know him and he has made himself known and available to you. And his deliverance, his rescue is a free gift for you. I just kind of had to say that aside because we often look to people 
to redeem us. And people fail. Only Jesus, the righteous judge, has ever not failed and he can deliver us. Will you hold on to him? My people, don't hold on to your own record. Those who know Jesus, those of you who are in relationship with him, the temptation you may have is, well, look how good my record is compared to other people. We all fail. He has never failed. Going back to the book of Judges, there's this refrain that is echoed through the whole book. It's, it's not explicitly stated in its fullness until the very end, but it's this idea that goes through this whole book. And it says in Judges 21, 25, it says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And one of the key points of the book of Judges is that it's meant to prepare you and to create in you a longing for a king, a true king, a righteous king who can lead, by God, lead God's people by God's word. And Judges tells the story of what it was like when there was no king, when people were left to their own devices, do whatever they felt was right. And we're showing this picture of justice with grace, right, doing what is right is so important as freedom. Now back to the beginning of the book of Judges, what's going on with the Israel people, their land has been divided, they now have tribal leaders and their tribal identity to lead them through the rest of the land. They've been given a commission by Joshua to finish out their inhabitants and make sure the land is theirs, this promised land. But here's what happens. They don't fulfill their job. They do it half-heartedly. They don't go all the way. They kind of went, um, this is good enough. And they were kind of like, uh, half-hearted in their faithfulness. They were half-hearted in their remembering. And they were half-hearted in their repentance. And this is what led to their downfall. Here's what I mean by this. They were half-hearted one in their obedience to God. Their attempt to faithfulness to God was flawed. If you look at the text of chapter one, it's essentially a telling of how things were going with the individual tribes and the conquest of the land. And there's some good news. It starts off with some really good news. In the first three verses, they open up with such promise. They ask the Lord, who's going to go up? Who will go up and fight this battle for us? So the people are seeking the Lord's face. They're seeking God's will. This seems good. But verse two, the Lord says, Judah will go. So Judah goes and says in verse 19, and the Lord was with Judah. And one commentary notes, uh, if the chapter ends there, it would be all, just all good news. It would be great. But the chapter doesn't end there. Because later on, chapter seven times actually, starting at the end of verse 19, the text tells us it did not drive out the inhabitants. So they were only halfway faithful. They were only halfway faithful in their obedience. To, uh, in being. So in verse 27, it says Manasseh didn't drive out the inhabitants. Verse 29, Ephraim didn't drive out the inhabitants. Further down, Zebulon, Asher, Naphtali, they did not drive out the inhabitants. And in fact, a couple of times in verse 28, verse 33, and 34, the inhabitants of the land were subjected to forced labor, which the Israelites could have driven them out. But they didn't. They chose not to. And so the first year of the Canaanites, they were allowed to survive, allowed to even flourish at times in the distance. They said the Canaanites were living with the Israelites, but there happens a shift of language. In verse 30, it says this. It says the Israelites are now living with the Canaanites. Not the Canaanites were living with the Israelites. It shifts in language to the Israelites were now living with the Canaanites. See, the way the story is told is the structure of the literature is that the language emphasizes that downward spiral of their half-heartedness. Even in Judah, the one that started out really good, the kingly line, the, the Judah line, you see their half-heartedness. We said Judah could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Now, I understand chariots are, are scary things. I've never seen a chariot before, but I imagine they're scary. I just could imagine that. But God is stronger than an iron chariot. They didn't trust. 
They were half-hearted in their faith. They were half-hearted in their remembering. Guys, I want you to understand what this is saying here. There's this pattern that occurred in chapter one. They didn't fully do what God called them to do. They were half-hearted. And it led to them being susceptible and no longer was the Canaanites living amongst them. They were now living amongst the Canaanites. They were also half-hearted in their remembering. They were forgetful. Chapter two, verse 10, maybe the saddest and scariest verse in the Bible. We read that there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he has done in Israel. Let me say that again. There arose a generation after them who did not know the Lord and the work he has done in Israel. What that basically means is that the former generation were half-hearted in their remembering. They were not passing down what happened. They were not living out their faith. They were not giving it to their children. Maybe their kids heard about stories but didn't really believe or understand about the God of the plague or the God of passion or the God of the Red Sea, the manna and the Jericho. They forgot about God. They abandoned God. Their hearts were far from him. And how terrible is that? How sad is that? And I say this is the saddest and toughest verse in the Bible. I say that because I imagine my own children. I think about our children. Guys, we're blessed at this church to have a ton of little kids back there. And they're cute and I love them and they're incredible. I call that the petting zoo, right? Although you shouldn't pet them. I'm just saying, that's what it looks like. It looks like the feeding zoo. You walk back there, they're like, these little kids kind of licking over the doors and they're so cute. You're like, oh, look at the cute kids. But it, there's so much more than just being cute kids over there. They are our job. They are our responsibility. They're the ones that we're called to, to show Christ to in such a way. We're called to teach them and love them so they know without a shadow of doubt in their hearts that they are known and that they are loved and that they are called to purpose. They are inheritance. They're the quiver. They're the arrows in our quiver. My people, how sad a text is this. There arose a generation that did not know the Lord. That did not believe. Could you imagine our children saying that? About well, that being said about our kids. How terrible that would be. God, we need to make sure our children are never like that. We need to make sure we are not half-hearted in our remembering. And this takes intentionality and priority making. Children are great at seeing authenticity. Do you know that? Because most of you guys, you guys forget that you guys were also once kids. And sometimes you forget that you also, not only were you once kids, but sometimes you also forget that like you, like you think you're smarter than your kids are at their age, your age. You guys know what I'm talking about? You're like, I saw through my parents. I knew all the stuff that was going on. You're like, but then you don't realize, that, then that means your kids probably see through you too. Do you guys get that? I just want you to be aware of that, right? If you're like, oh, I knew all my parents were doing, I can see through all their stuff. Well, then most likely they're gonna see through your stuff too. Does that make sense? Children are great at seeing authenticity. What will they remember as prioritizing your home? Can I say that again? What will they remember as being most important in your home? Career, money, status, sports, leisure. What was most important in your home? What will your children remember? If we're half-hearted in our remembering, they won't remember God. 
a God who knows them and loves them. They won't remember the most important lesson they could ever hear, that they can be known fully for all that they are, all their flaws, all their issues. They can be known fully, but they can also be loved completely. The lesson that we so desperately need to hear is the most important thing that we can grab. They won't know it if you don't show it to them and teach it to them. That they can be known fully, loved completely, and have purpose in life. We need to be, not be half-hearted in our remembering, but we need to teach them and remember. They're also half-hearted in their repentance. Chapter 2, verse 4, they said they wept and offered sacrifices, which is great, right? But a sad thing about the weeping we see in this contest, especially chapter 2, is they were weeping because they were kind of caught, found out, and receiving a punishment. Right? It was more the sadness of being caught and suffering the consequences rather than the actual sadness of over what they did. These are the difference, right? My son Hudson is a great example of this, right? My wife's sort of nodding her head. But if my son Hudson does something wrong, right, and I take away his toy, all of a sudden he gets super sad. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I'm like, are you sorry that you did the wrong thing or are you sorry that your toy's been taken away? <laughs> it's always just an attack that the toy's been taken away. What I want him to get is, yes, I want you to be sorry. I, I, I will take the toy away for you so you can learn, but I want you to learn that that very act that you did should grieve your heart. And you shouldn't be mean to another kid because it's wrong. And we believe in what is wrong and what is right. And so I don't want him to weep over the fact he lost his toy. I want him to weep over the fact that I didn't do what I should have done. I'm better than that. And here's Israel, and they're weeping over the fact that they're punished, they're being plundered, and instead God's calling them to weep over their own sin. My people, when was the last time that you wept over your sin? Does it grieve you? Ever? And I'm not saying, please hear me very well, I'm not saying that you should wallow in your sin, you shouldn't always say, woe is me, and beat yourself up all the time. I am not saying that at all. But can I tell you something? That when you understand the depth of your own sin and how harsh it is, how, you also then understand the depth of how beautiful grace is. When was the last time you wept over your own sin? And the fact that it grieves your father's heart that you weep about it. When was the last time you did something and you just wept about it because you know it hurts others and eventually it even hurts yourself? Can I tell you something? When we look lightly upon sin, then we look lightly upon grace and the work of Jesus. But we know how grievous and how hard it is for sin to exist in this world, how much it wounds our Father's heart then we can truly see what amazing grace is. Does that make sense? Let's not be half-hearted in our repentance, but also in our acceptance of his grace. Let's not be half-hearted in that. It is good to acknowledge your sin, but it's even better to acknowledge that Christ paid it all. It's good to acknowledge how terrible our sin is, but it's even better to acknowledge that no matter how terrible our sin is, Christ still paid for all of it, every bit of it, fully and completely upon the cross, and we are now known and loved and forgiven and fully his. You see, the Israelites were half-hearted people. That's one of the main reasons God called Israelites to drive out the Canaanites. He knew his people were half-hearted. He knew they were weak. And so are we, guys. Every one of us, we're half-hearted often in our faithfulness, in our remembering, 
and our repentance causes us to be fickle. I love that song, Come Thou Found, with the part where it says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. There's something in our hearts because we're half-hearted that makes us prone to wander. But here's the amazing thing. We may be half-hearted people, but the best part of the story is that we have a whole-hearted God. And he shows up. In chapter two, God comes to his people and their failures and their half-heartedness, and he, he still counts his, co- his covenant promises to the people. He says in verse one, I'll never break my covenant. He says, I'm committed to you. I'll never stop loving you. I'm your faithful God, the God of grace upon grace. That's verse one. Then he says in verse three, though, right after that, he says, I'll never break my covenant. But he also says, but I will not drive them out before you. In other words, God says, I am holy, and I cannot bless what is evil, but also that I love you and will keep my promises to you. Basically, God's here saying, I can't stop loving you, I'm gracious to you, but I hate your sin, and your disobedience cannot be abided by. I want to bless you, I want to bless you as my people, but you're disobedient people. There's a tension here. Do you feel it? And if things don't get settled or solved, this book of Judges is just kind of awkward, it's weird, that's the problem. There's an awkward tension here, and it doesn't get settled or solved until the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus that the tension finally comes to its head. It's in Jesus, the ultimate judge, the ultimate deliverer, who, who hears his people's cry and their ultimate need and delivers them. And God's holiness demands obedience. And Jesus lives under that full obedience of the law and holiness. And his justice demands payment and punishment, and he takes it fully upon himself. So you see this tension full of grace and full of mercy meeting justice and righteousness. What will God do with you? What will he do with you in conjunction of your half-heartedness? What does he do with you in light of his mercy and obedience? What does he do with you in light of his justice? What does he do with righteousness and mercy and grace? This is what he does. He says, I'm gonna die in your place. You see, God in Christ became one of us. He was beaten, put on a cross, and on the cross, God is faithful to his promise and all that his justice demands, and he poured it on Jesus. And he's faithful to his grace. He's faithful to his promise. He'll never abandon his people. So Jesus came in the fullness of time, in the midst of our cries, and he provided a love that will never let you go. So that tension point of justice and mercy met together, came to a head, and fell upon Jesus. My people, as we enter into this book of Judges, we see this pattern that was now broken by Jesus. He was the righteous judge that delivered once for all. And he's a judge that lives and reigns forever. Because it says as long as the judge lived, they were following him. Where our judge lives. Can I say that again? Our judge lives. Our rescuer lives. He is not dead. He is living today. He lives in you. He reigns from heaven. His spirit is upon us to do the work that he's called us to do. And because he lives, we can walk in righteousness and full of trusting in the promise that he is with us and he delivers us. How beautiful is that story? How incredibly well does it fit together and it is made for you and for me? My people, I want you to hear this so well. Don't you miss this. We may be half-hearted and this cycle might have been our destiny, but because Jesus is wholehearted, and because he paid the price, and because he lives, that cycle is no longer our truth, and no longer our destiny. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, 
We thank you that you're a God of covenant and of promise. God, that you keep your word, that you said you will not abandon us, God, that you're a God of grace and of mercy. But God, we also thank you that you're a God of righteousness and justice. God, that we know that right and wrong exists because you are all right and you are all good and you are all beautiful. God, that so we can even know what it means, God, to live in a world of righteousness and justice because of you. And so you don't abide by sin. So thank you that that tension point meets upon the cross and it meets upon Jesus. God, that he's the judge, the deliverer that rescues and broke the cycle. So God, will you continue to shower this truth upon us for those who don't know you in this way, who don't know Jesus, doesn't know Jesus as rescuer. God, will you move and stir in their hearts to respond to you? God, we ask you to move in all of our hearts, God. And for those who are being, the Spirit is moving in and speaking to you right now, God, will you give them courage to respond to you in Jesus' name? Amen.